everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with the Double L Team, Lyle and... Lawson. Lawson. How are you this morning? I am so good, Lyle. You are so I'm, good. I'm doing great. Great. I'm doing fantastic. In fact, fantastic. there are multiple things that I'm thankful for, but I'm not going to say all of them. Okay. I'm just going to say one of them right now. One. I was driving. Yeah, we live in Newcastle here. Yes. I was driving to the studio. Yes. And as I, you know, passed through Bullaroo, yes. uh, where, you know, where the big Bunnings is there? Yes. Yeah. Guess what's being built beside it? I have no idea. They're currently clearing land to build. A Costco. <laughs> so we will have wholesale food here in, here in American New- food is coming to Australia. Yes. So good, obviously, because it's cheap and it's great. And yeah, so I was super grateful for that this morning on my drive well, to work. We lived in Sydney for uh, 21 years. And uh, while we were living there, they built a Costco just down the road from us, like maybe literally three minutes drive from where mm-hmm. we lived. And we left about what? Three months before it opened, something like that. And it was like, duh. Ah, that's and tough. now it moved up here and, well, we'll have one within maybe, what, half an hour, 40 minutes? Yeah. Well, there's like three, four of them in Sydney. Ah, yes. So now we have one up here. Awesome. La, what are you grateful for this morning? Ooh, I am grateful for... The gears are turning. Um, yeah, the gears are turning. Me time. I had some me time yesterday. Oh, that's cute. Me time is just good sometimes. <laughs> that's just, awesome. Just, I went out in the shed. I closed the door and I didn't come out all day. That's epic. Let's go. She wasn't now home. That, that she is... wasn't home. She was busy out doing stuff, you know, oh. going around, spending money, <laughs> trying on dresses, sending me photos, all that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is a true story. And I was in the shed. Getting shed it time, done. Shed, shed oh, time is that the best. is so shed good. Time is the best. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Let's have some All right, positively, let's have different some positively different news. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, big news. Okay, I'm going to talk about sport for a little bit, just just a small while, because you know, sport is a big part of the world. And I feel like there is a lesson to draw out of this. I'm going to be talking about... I'm going to be keen to find out how you draw a lesson out of this appropriate for Christian radio. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, football or soccer or however you like to call it. Call it it soccer. No, it's football. But anyways... It's soccer. Easily, like, one of the biggest breaking stories, if the sport world, if not in the whole world, because it's called, you know, it's known as the world's game, soccer, is the whole... Uh, European Super League thing. Now, for those who don't know what that is, basically a group of clubs from Europe, basic the biggest clubs, you know, Real Madrid, Manchester United, Barcelona, Juventus, like the biggest, biggest clubs, decided to get together and create their own breakaway league uh, with, right. with only 20 teams. Now, yes. this was quite... A negative thing to the public. There was lots of backlash, and, and that's essentially because how um, football works in Europe is that you have all your different teams in all your different countries. And let's take the English Premier League for example. There's a really good economy of teams, which essentially means that there's there's since the tw- 2010s there's been what's called the Big Six teams, which is uh, Chelsea, Manchester United, Manchester City. Tottenham, Arsenal, and Liverpool. And, but under them, there are a whole, like, 
ton of teams in the English Premier League. And then there's a league below that. And essentially, like, all these different teams, depending on, you know, what kind of players they get or what kind of cash injections they get or whatever it may be, have the ability to move up and down the ladder, you know, based on their performance. Yeah, but essentially... Yeah, you can work up. You can work you, up and... You, you can, can work up and down and you can come from, like, the bottom league into the top league. You can also go from the top league into the... That's in, how sport goes. Into the bottom league. But it's this really healthy thing and it exists in all the countries. And then once you get a top four from, say, England, Spain, France, Germany, all the, the different European countries, the top four teams in their country then qualify for the Champions League and then they have the, the UEFA Champions League and whoever wins that is, like... The team of teams, essentially, because it's like a, there's a round-robin format that happens in the Champions League, and then you qualify up and qualify up, and then you win. So yeah. what the European Super League is essentially intended to do is to take the 20 best teams from all those different countries. So it takes, you know, uh, from England, like Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham, Manchester United, from um, Italy, Juventus, Inter Milan, AC Milan, from you know Real Madrid, yeah, Atletico yeah, okay, Madrid, okay. like also all the best teams from everywhere, and create this exclusive twenty-team league mm-hmm. that would essentially be like a week in, week out, all the best teams going against each other. Mm-hmm. Now, it was a there was a lot of backlash against this. I think the main reason being that it essentially sets up an exclusive. Like league of cuts clubs. out all of the other. It, yeah, it it it, it 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 basically smashes a bunch of rungs out of the ladder so that anyone who's down below them can never climb up to meet yeah, them. Never climb up, and it also like lessens the exposure of the other teams. Or less like because if if Burnley are playing against Man U, there's going to be lots of Man U people there, and not many Burnley people. But Burnley gets the exposure. Burnley gets the money. Say so if they like hold the game in their stadium, you know the TV rights and so everything. So the rich get richer, poor get poorer. Kind of essentially, scenario. that's what it is. Um, um, but thankfully, because of the pressure, um, all of those teams, not all of the teams, all of the English teams, except for Chelsea, have decided to not be a part of the English Super League. It's essentially, out of 20 teams that were proposed in the beginning, only six are left. So it seems as though this thing is crumbling and collapsing, and rightly so. Like, for the football so this world... this happened really we, fast. Yeah, extremely I mean, fast. it was formed by, what, this time yesterday morning, and it's already fallen apart by this time it was, today? It was a couple days ago, about a week ago, it was it was formed. And, like, but, yeah, for Tottenham, which is my team, uh, essentially, they joined, were in the proposal for about two days before leaving and releasing a statement yesterday that was like, we're sorry that we did... A bad thing, but look, okay. So this was this was a statement that's just been sent through by a listener. Um, it's a quote from uh, Man City boss. He says, "It's not a sport when the relation between effort and reward doesn't exist. Oof. It's not a sport when success is already guaranteed. It's mm. not a sport if it doesn't matter if you lose." Ooh, yeah. Well, that's a, because there's no consequences. Yeah, if right. you're in the English Super League, you're already a massive team and you're already earning money. And if you get last, well, then you just rock up next year. Whereas, like, in the Premier League, if you get last, then you get dropped. So, but this, yeah, this is a really good thing that this is dissolving, mainly because as well, uh, essentially, like, the, the lesson that I kind of gleaned and drawed from this was that people were just doing it for greed. Not for the best interests of others. You're killing, like, an entire industry because you know you can. Yeah, they're doing it because they could. Yeah. Whereas, like, it's cool to see that there's actually care for the people, 
firstly, like, you, people will think, oh, for the fans, because this is better. But, dude, think about the players. Like, how many people you put out of jobs, out of work, because they don't have the ability. Because this would quickly kill. So this if this is, went this, through, this it would quickly kill the Premier League. It's an interesting League. lesson on capitalism right here. Mm. Because from a capitalist perspective, uh, they do it because they can, and they can make more money that way, mm. and they can, you know, kill off some of the, the, the competition of the lower teams and so forth, and that becomes a good thing from a capitalist perspective. Mm. But then you've got the fans that come in, which are the equivalent of your customers, and, you know, um, I know nothing about soccer, but my son's into it, and he was like, oh, I'm not even going to wear my team colours anymore. Um, and so when the when the customers kick in, then that's where the capitalist system has its checks and balances. Mm. So, yeah, this is a really good thing that it, it is quickly dissolving and uh, it means that football in Europe will and get on as usual. this relates to Christian radio because? Oh, because, <laughs> because listen, it's like, it's an ethical Cause, thing. Because Lawson is passionate no, about no, it. No, no, no. It's an ethical thing. It's, okay. a, it's an ethical thing of they made the right ethical decision by leaving the ESL. Because if they had continued on with it, it would have killed a lot of the industry and put a lot of people out of work. It would have been bad for the fans. It would have been bad for everyone. Um, but now they're, they're, yeah, staying, staying close to their roots and, uh, deciding to do what's in the best interest of everyone else. Give us a call. Let us, in, let us know whether you think Lawson's <laughs> drawing a long bow there or not. <laughs> Stretching it as far as he can so we can talk about his favorite subject this morning. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. Anyway. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Oh, what's happening around the world? Okay, the greatest news. archaeological discovery of all time. This, the archaeological discovery that is of the most financial value in our world right now. Which one would that be? It's a... Well, people always say the Dead Sea Scrolls is the greatest of all time. Is it the Dead it's Sea Scrolls? Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, okay. Which is just a, it's funny because all it is is um, some old rolled up leather. Mm-hmm. When they first found it, they're like, ah, we'll try and hock this off for shoe leather. You know, when Muhammad the Wolf found it in 1947, that's what they tried to do. They sold it to a, uh, a cobbler to use for shoe leather. And some of it got used for shoe leather mm. uh, until they actually discovered that this was actually the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. You know, when they discovered Tutankhamun's tomb, they didn't go, ah, oh, there's some bright, shiny stuff in here. Um, we're not sure what we'll do with it. Let's um, see if we can take it down to the local pawn shop. They're like, whoa, no, this is a whole lot of gold. But it pales in significance to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, wow. Okay, so the Dead Sea Scrolls were scrolls that were written uh, 2nd century BC, thereabouts, um, over quite a period of time, up until the 1st century AD, possibly. Um, They are a collection of Jewish books. Amongst that collection of Jewish books, like a whole library of them, are um, a whole bunch of uh, copies of the old or passages, copies, etc., of Old Testament books. Some of those Old Testament books are basically complete. Of course, over the years, um, there's been some damage that's happened to the scrolls, and so quite a few of them are incomplete. The most famous, of course, of them is the Isaiah scroll. Now, the Isaiah scroll has a gap in the middle of it. Mm. Only a small gap, and so people have often wondered whether it was a situation where there was actually two scribes, one who mm. wrote the first half, one who wrote the second half, and, uh, you know, kind of what the story was there. So they got in all of the, you know, the linguistic experts who studied handwriting and said, no, the handwriting is identical between the two. Mm. And so it was one scribe who wrote the whole thing, and then they were unsure as to why there might be a gap in the middle. Okay, so what they recently did was there was this guy, let me just find his uh, name here, uh, Dr. Lambert Shoemaker. Um, 
and he teamed up with um, Mladen Dopovich, who mm-hmm. is a historian of ancient Jewish religion and culture at the University of uh, Groninger in the Netherlands. And the other, Lambert Shoemaker and Maruf Ardali uh, were from the same university but from the Department of Artificial Intelligence. Oh, wow. Okay. So these two got together and they're like, let's have another look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so basically what they were able to do was to take a computer image of the Isaiah Scroll mm-hmm. and then run it through their AI software. And the AI software was able to compile every single, a copy of every single of each letter. So mm-hmm. if it was in English, it would be every single A, every single B, every single D mm. that's in the scrolls and then line them all up side by side so you could actually compare them side by side rather than just actually looking at the scroll as a whole. Mm. And they were able to determine conclusively that the scroll was written by two different scribes. Ooh, okay, okay, okay. okay, so this is where it becomes interesting because now you've kind of got this DNA, this scribe DNA that you can actually uh, trace using artificial intelligence and yeah. that raises a whole bunch of interesting questions. The first question is why are the styles so similar that it cannot be picked up by the human eye until you use artificial intelligence to actually look at it and why is it so plain and obvious once the artificial intelligence is able to do its analysis. And so there's a number of different theories, you know. Um, This could have been two scribes that were trained by the same teacher or worked very closely together or were a parent and child, or you could have a second scribe who's come along and, you know, because the scribal rules were so strict, just gone, you know what, I need to copy exactly the style of the previous scribe. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that they've established the DNA of these two particular scribes, they can then now build a DNA um, profile of all of the different scribes of all of the Dead Seas scrolls. So they can say, well, this scribe wrote this one here, this one here, this one here, and that scribe wrote, oh, he wrote these ones over here, and this is information that they've never, ever had before. Bit of a handshake with the past. Oh, that's amazing. So they can build a picture of, like, what was the team like who put yes. who compiled these documents? How many scribes were there mm. and who wrote what? And then, of course, you can, you know, look into some of that. It's interesting because when you look at the rules that these guys had to write under, and so, you know, we live in the age of printing presses where, you know, once you've got the printing press set up, uh, it's going to just spit the same thing out every time. But when you're using scribes, you have the possibility of errors creeping in. Yes. Error creep. And so it's interesting to, 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 to actually study how they were able to avoid having any kind of error creep. Mm. And so, first of all, if you look at the process, all materials had to be made according to very strict specifications. The parchments had to be made from the skins of clean animals and the quills had to be made from the made from the feathers of clean birds. That's Mm. where you started. No word or even a letter could be written from memory. Mm. Uh, The scribe had to have an open scroll open before him and he had to pronounce every word out loud before copying it down. Uh, Before writing the name of God, the scribe had to reverently wipe his pen and and say, I am writing the name of God for the holiness of his name. And then you write the name of God and then you clean your pen again. Uh-huh. Um, so that's pretty cool. Every letter had to have some space around it. 
if it touched another letter or if a letter was defective because of incorrect writing, um, a hole, a tear, a smudge. Uh, the whole thing would get scrapped. You just, you just yeah. scrap the whole thing, start over. Um, okay, so within 30 days of completion, an editor would review the manuscript. He would count every letter on the page and every punctuation mark. So there was a number of letters, a number of punctuation marks for each page. And if the count did not come out right, the whole scroll was invalidated and thrown out. Mm. Um, He would make sure that the middle word on each page of the copy was the same as the middle word on the manuscript being copied. So the position of the word had to be the same. These guys were pretty full on when it came to, um, to copying stuff down. If any mistakes were made, the scroll had to be buried. Mm. So, of course, you know, being made out of leather and so forth, it would be lost. And so these guys had some serious, serious, um, put a lot of serious effort into making sure that there was no creep. And this is why you can read uh, your Dead Sea Scroll from Isaiah from, you know, 2,000 years ago, and you can read modern manuscripts today, and you've got this book that has been passed down by scribes, and it is still accurate today. Mm. You know, the one we have in the Bible from, you know, King James Version or whatever is exactly the same as the one that comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found in 1947 from 200 years BC. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. So joining us on the phone this morning is Baron Neustrat. Now, Baron, of course, is an expert on the book of Genesis and, well, really the books of Moses because uh, Baron's done a tremendous amount of work researching the sanctuary service as well. But we've been working through the book of Genesis. We're up to Chapter 20. Baron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Baron, we've got this fascinating story that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning about Abraham and the story of Abimelech. And I just want to, I guess, begin by, you know, asking this question. Abraham seems to be a bit of a loser here. Maybe maybe we should talk about the story, mm. but it's just, uh, it's like, really? Yeah. Again? Yeah. It's kind of that kind of a story, isn't it? Yes. Uh, of course, it was a long time ago since the first time, uh, you know, you're talking about at least 25 years, that when he uh, sort of came into Egypt, as he left uh, the, the northern part of Upper Mesopotamia, uh, and he was uh, his, his wife was, of course, as he was ten years younger, quite amazing, attractive at the age of sixties. But here we have a, a real interesting case. We have a woman that is ninety years old thereabouts, and that makes it really interesting. She was a good-looking ninety-year-old. So there you have it. Okay, so take us through the story, Baron. What is it that actually happens here? And how do you have, I mean, we're going to have to come back and answer this question, how you have somebody who is in their 90s and who, and, and who is just stunningly beautiful um, yeah. that, that creates this problem. Take us through the story. What happens I, here? I would, I would suggest that she would be of a fair complexion and that uh, beauty was uh, measured in the uniqueness of being fair or darker. I think that might have played a big role. This particular king, Abimelech, um, his name is interesting. Abi means my father. Melech is king. So the, the, the name could mean my father, the king. It could also mean my father is king, which is probably not a personal name, but a title, like, a, like Pharaoh for the Egyptians. 
for argument's sake. Uh, that was more a title than a personal name. Um, these kings had massive harems. <laughs> it wasn't so much the appetite for uh, for the obvious. It was more so in a situation where they would have alliances as well, which were very important. If you married, you could marry into an alliance if you like with other people. It was very much a tribal collective existence in the Middle East. The tribes are fairly independent. And uh, so if you had uh, many wives and uh, therefore many connections with various tribes, that would stabilize your position. How big How big were these kingdoms during this era? So the kingdom of Abimelech, um, how much land would have he, have he ruled over? Like are we talking yeah. about the whole of Canaan or is this more of a no, tribal era? no. Now, it's interesting, good question. It's actually interesting that the, the man was a Philistine, and uh, so there were early Philistine settlements, mainly uh, today's the, uh, identification of their territory would be the district of the Gaza Strip. That's where they had their cities, and the cities were kingdom cities. So they had an, a coalition between them to enforce their existence, and, and they would assist each other and protect each other, uh, in the case of warfare, but uh, the there was a high degree of the in, independency between the various kingdoms, and that is how they existed. And Abimelech was just one of them. Right, so he would have ruled over a particular um, city, um, <laughs> kind of like a smaller version of the city-state system that uh, Greece had in later times? Yeah, yeah. That's a good comparison. Greece had that very much, and it, uh, of course, was Alexander's uh, dad, or Philip of Macedon, who united them. Um, but here we have a, uh, a case that that is relatively similar, actually, and developed more as more Philistines actually settled in that Gaza Strip that we, oh, well, we know today as the Gaza Strip. Mm. Okay, so we've got this guy, Abimelech. He rules over one of these um, small city-states in the Gaza Strip there, and it comes into contact with Abraham, and what happens? Yeah, somehow he must have uh, laid eyes on her, or his servants must have reported it to him, um, that uh, there is this woman, and uh, she's good-looking, and she is uh, uh, obviously part of the entourage of uh, Abraham, who was considered to be, uh, you know, highly regarded. He certainly had a reputation. Uh, but the uh, Abimelech did not know, of course, that it was his wife that it becomes very clear. And so it, w- it was a matter of just taking her, in the sense that prepare her as being part of uh, his harem collective wives, if you know what I mean. And uh, he had not made any approaches as yet. It would appear, it would appear that uh, there was uh, uh, no, not a great deal of romance involved. It was just a choice of Abimelech, but not so much the woman. She just had to go it along. And uh, so he was aware of the relation, uh, a relationship between her and Abram. But since there was already an agreement between her and Abram, that she would identify herself as his sister so that nobody would want to kill Abram and therefore be able to marry uh, Sarah. 
that was the situation. Okay, so at this particular point, Baron, I just have to ask this question because it seems that, you know, Abraham has got a bit of a bad record here as to how he treats women. Um, he's done this before back in Egypt where he's like, okay, just tell everyone yeah. you're my sister because if they think that you're my wife, they're going to kill me and take you. So um, you yeah. go and, and, and just get be taken off to any random person's harem just so that I can live. Um, and then, you know, God has to rescue him out of that situation. Then we've got the yeah. whole situation with Hagar where, you know, he's sleeping with Sarah's, you know, handmaid, which is kind of the modern-day equivalent of sleeping with the babysitter and expecting Sarah yeah. to be cool with that. And now he's got this other situation where Abimelech is obviously a very powerful person, um, most likely significantly more powerful than Abraham, and Abraham's like, just, just, just say you're my sister. Um, Baron, if we tried to do this with, uh, you know, if you tried to do this with your wife or my wife, I think they'd have something to say about it. Oh, uh, you'll you'll have beans on toast for the next twenty years. <laughs> and you'll have to make it. A... <laughs> let, let me assure you. Uh, I think the the interesting thing is two aspects to this. One of them, she was indeed his half sister, same dad, different mom. So that was a fact. But by procuring the intent that she was only his sister, he was not telling the truth. And it just goes to show that Abram was not perfect either. And if he, as we will do very soon, go to the, the chapter that deals with the offering of Isaac, uh, you wonder sometimes uh, that, that God tested him beyond with such severity as he did. It still does show that Abram was a, was a giant of faith. But in his humanity, in his humanity, and we all can take a leave out of that. In his humanity, he did compromise that he needn't have done, and it uh, it uh, yeah did not help his uh, what shall I say his actual intended mission as a representative of the one true God uh, in the area where he lived. It was a shame, but he was not perfect, but he was very good. So this is actually this is actually a theme that we find throughout the Bible, which is. Yeah. unique in ancient documents where all of the great heroes of the Bible have their sins publicly listed for everybody to read about. Why, yes. does, why does God record their sins? Doesn't he want it to you know, emulate their righteousness, not their evil? Yeah. Well, that's the wonderful thing. The Bible is in a very honest and, and straightforward book when it comes to that. God doesn't make anybody more beautiful or more more powerful or more of this, more that than they are. He honestly, totally, completely uh, states the facts uh, through his word. And uh, Moses records this for uh, as an object lesson to all of us, really. And that's what it is, and that's how you should regard it, that uh, we can never assume and uh, we must never rely on our cleverness. This can be very detrimental and backfire. And maybe all of us have done this in one form or another. Uh, we can only learn from it, though. Yes. And so if Abraham can commit, you know, sins like this and, you know, repeat the same sin again yeah, and still yeah. become a great man of faith and an example of faith. And then and, and tremendous. I mean, the, the incident there, as we will soon study a lot, 
the, the offering of Isaac is just incredible that he could do it. Yes, yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, and that's, um, as you say, that's a story that's coming up soon because, you know, we're about to talk about yeah. the the conception of uh, of Isaac in the next chapter. Tell me, when we're, yeah. when we're looking at Abimelech uh, yeah. and this whole situation right here, you know, this is, you know, as you, as you pointed out, um, she's taken in, made a part of his harem, um, forms this alliance. Why would Abimelech want to have an alliance with a nomadic farmer? Was Abraham um, that significant? Yes, he, his reputation was there. Uh, don't forget, he, uh, he did settle the account with the Mesopotamian kings. Um, and uh, as they had uh, attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and some of the other cities, he was uh, he could handle himself, and it was evident that his God blessed him. His herds numbers were tremendous. He had uh, procured a lot of and, and acquired a lot of servants that had joined uh, joined his household. We don't know about the precise numbers, but it was clear that there was a significance about Abraham. I think they accepted that. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, so when, when, when this all happens, and, of course, Sarah's taken away, um, she's sent off to the harem. Um, you can only imagine what she's thinking about her husband as, uh, as this all unfolds, and um, God has to step in and rescue the situation yeah. again. What actually takes place? Yeah, it's interesting. The Bible does, uh, is low on detail, so there was a disease that was... Um, uh, had come into the household of Abimelech, which uh, to some degree uh, rendered um, the device uh, incapable of, of having any children, any childbearing. But it must have been an acute illness uh, that uh, that prevailed, uh, of which um, Abimelech was also a recipient. And because God said, "You'll die, you touch us, you will die." So Abimelech must have contracted. Uh, the melody that had fallen upon his house as well. And um, that they saw that as a sign of God. And it's interesting that God actually approaches him. And again, the details are fairly low. Was it uh, an angel? I presume so. It was believed a dream that he did, that he was uh, made aware of the fact that he was not eligible to be part of his harem. Uh, and certainly for one. But it's an interesting aspect. To this whole story, you know, you know, Ishma, uh, you know, uh, what shall I say? Isaac was to be born. I think Satan really tried here to establish an and an, an relation, a physical relationship between uh, Abimelech and uh, and Sarah, so that the son that would come, the one that was promised by God, could be considered by critics to be really a child of Abimelech. Maybe Satan was really trying to ruin, what shall I say, uh, uh, the plan that God had for the offspring that he wanted for uh, for Israel, for Abraham. Mm, and, the covenant, uh, the covenant uh, that he made with Abraham. Yes, yes. And of course, he was born on time. You know, the, the previous visits there, he was at the Oaks of Memorem, the three men that came in the middle of the day. There was uh, one of them, the Lord, that made the clear promise at this time next year, uh, couldn't be clearer, which is what happened. Um, the remarkable thing of Isaac, he was born on time. That is God's time. Mm, mm. 
Baron, this is very interesting points that you're raising right here, and I think that's one of the more significant ones that I've never actually stopped to consider before. But thank you for joining us here on The Breakfast Show to talk about this unusual story between Abraham, Abimelech, and Sarah. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.